for decades. He's been the king of Memphis. It's good to be king of your own little town. You want to see the king? You think anybody would pay to come down and see a sawed-off runt? Bug-eyed Bill Dundee? No, they come to see me, baby. King of them all, right here it is, baby. The greatest wrestler that ever lived and ever will step into a ring. You're looking at him, and I am the champion. And you may be familiar with his work in WWE, too. I'll show you who the real king of the World Wrestling Federation is. It's the most electrifying move. It's Mark's entertainment today. Oh, the people that won't. For 50 years, he's been known all over the world as one of wrestling's biggest stars. And now, he's decided to share all of his favorite stories from his 50 years in wrestling with you. Tell me a story. Why don't you put your false teeth in backward and eat yourself to death? (laughs) Oh, that's one of my favorites. This is the Jerry Lawler Show. And welcome back, everybody, to the Jerry Lawler Show. My name is Sean Reedy, and I am joined by the man responsible for the highest TV ratings in pro wrestling history and one half of the greatest announced team uh, in WWE history, at least, let's say. Jerry the King Lawler, how are you today? Sean, I'm doing good. And you said, welcome back, welcome back, back to everybody, welcome back to you and I. We have, what kind of a hiatus have we been on here as far as the podcast goes? Uh, I think it's about two months. Whoa, two months. But we're back and we're going to be better than ever. (laughs) I'll say what I said to Lance Russell one time. I'm glad to see you back, especially after seeing your front. Uh, but anyway, yeah, this this uh, this has been a long uh, drought or dry spell that we've been through here. And, you know, I, I'm sure the people have to realize that before we actually start recording, we sit and talk, you know, about what we're going to talk about a little bit. And it's uh, not totally just off the cuff, but it's, it's crazy uh, what the, you know, the topics that you and I were talking about before we went started recording here. I mean – I'm just, I'm so concerned about the world. Will it ever get back to normal, do you think? What do you think? Well, my hope is that when this virus calms down and people are going back to work and have some structure, maybe we can settle down a little bit and stop yelling at each other so much. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, everything has become so political or politicized or whatever but i heard somebody say something the other day and it really gave me pause to think about the fact that um what you just said whenever this virus settles down you know what it it may not ever settle down i mean this may be our new normal that we and and the the person that was talking was on tv and they said we're just gonna have to live with this virus because it's not going to go away. I mean, and when you look at, when you look at some of the other, uh, viruses and things that we've learned to live down through the years, I mean, the common cold, how many years have they tried it for the common cold or, or, um, AIDS, apparently AIDS showed up like 39 years ago and there's still no cure for that. But we've, you know, we've been, We've come to be able to to cope with it over the years and 
And the same thing with the cold. And just the regular flu. You know, there's no, you have a vaccine, but it obviously doesn't work because it still affects hundreds of thousands of people every single year. So it, it, this may just be something that we have to, have to deal with from now on. Who knows? I mean, I, I just, it's been my, my belief that viruses are almost impossible to find a cure for. They mutate, they do different things. And, uh, so we, like I said, they may never, they may come up with a vaccine that might help or a treatment that might help. But as far as just like killing this thing off completely where it's completely gone, that may never really happen. Yeah, everyone is so confident that we'll get the vaccine, but it, I mean, we can hope, but you know, this stuff isn't guaranteed. Like you said, viruses are tricky. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I mean, I, I just think, I, I really think that we, uh, everybody needs to do what, whatever they can to, you know, continue on with as normal a life as possible. We can't, I don't think we can sit back and people completely stay out of work and lose their jobs and all of that sort of stuff. We're just going to have to, we're just going to have to, um, try to find a way to, to, to get around this. I mean, some of the good news is the fact that I think that, I think that as time goes by, they realize that this, this virus is not as deadly as they had predicted it was going to be, that a lot of people are probably going to, get sick with it, but they're going to, you know, recover from it. Uh, and, and, and that, that may be, like I said, that may be what we have to live with in the future, that some people are just, you're just going to have to, uh, come to grips with the fact that a lot of people are going to get sick with this, but, uh, and hope that most of them will, um, you know, will recover. Well, at some point, aren't we, it doesn't uh, herd immunity happen. Well, that's another thing. I've, I've heard about that. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if they've said yet that if, if, uh, I mean, there's, everything's still up in the air. And I, and I, and I hate to watch on TV about, you know, while they're, they're trying to talk to the president or they're trying to talk to the, uh, the medical experts, the scientists and everything. And the truth of the matter is, None of these people, the president, the scientists, they, they don't know, they don't know for sure. But, you know, the public and the press, they want a definite answer. But they, there's not one. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen. Even the, even the scientists that, that claim to know all about this, these diseases, if they, if they knew exactly what was going to happen or whatever, they would, uh, you know, they would know how to find a cure for this thing to stop it. So nobody really knows, but everybody keeps going out there and asking the question because they, that everybody does want a definitive answer, but I don't think there's, I don't think there's ever going to be one. And one of the questions is, if you get, if you test positive and you get sick or either you don't, uh, get sick and then you basically recover from it, can you, can you get reinfected again? That's a, that's a big one I'm curious about because we have talked about how I got incredibly sick at Disney World in late January, and I'm 99% sure that I had it. So I thought I was good, but now there's people starting to say that you can possibly get it again, which would really suck. I don't want to do that again. Right. But that's what I say. Nobody really knows 
anything about this this stuff yet, you know. So well, I mean, that's I, I look at uh, what was it like two three months ago that Fauci was saying that masks don't really do anything, and now we walk around with these things feeling like we've got uh, you know a, a shield of honor or, or of uh, what am I trying to say? You know, like we've got a shield on us and we're just completely fine as long as we wear a mask. Right. And and I just, you know, I just did a commercial last month uh here in Memphis that they play they're playing it all over TV right now. It's a thing, it's a a campaign called Mask Up Memphis and you know, I'm standing out in front of Graceland um at the gates of Elvis Presley's home and I'm saying, you know, hey, in, in Memphis and in Shelby County from one king to another, you know, we wear masks. And then I put my mask on and I walk through the gate up towards Graceland. And I mean, you know, I, I've, uh, and then they, they, it plays all the time on TV here in Memphis. And I put it up on Twitter. And it's funny when I put it up on Twitter, literally half the response was positive, And then the other half of the response was, was negative. So everything, this country is so divided right down the middle right now. And, and anything you try to do is, is, you know, there's no pleasing everybody. And just like half the people think you're, you're crazy if you don't wear a mask. And, and the other half of people think you're crazy if you do wear a mask. I do know that here in Memphis, they, the, the uh, mayor just went back to another ordinance where basically the, a mask is required to go into stores or good to go out in public. It's like a, a city ordinance now. So. You know, that, that, uh, and I think that's going to be uh, maybe the way of the future for, for a while too. Yeah, we have the same thing here in Illinois. Um, but, oh, I was going to say the reason I got on that conversation was somebody, somebody answered that tweet of me wearing the mask in front of the gates at Graceland and the, and the person said, King, uh, you wearing that mask is doing just about as much good as as those gates uh, that you're standing in front of of stopping the virus. I mean, so there's a lot of people that just don't believe that that you know that that's that that the wearing the mask is that helpful. Yeah, I don't I don't know what to believe because, like you said, we, we keep getting different information that changes by the. By the day, it seems like right now we're we're heavy into the mask, so you know I'll go along with that, uh, and uh, you know try to make everybody feel comfortable and safe. But I don't know, I don't know. Well, right, right, right before I came here to start recording this session, I had lunch. I had my typical Thursday lunch with good old Dave Brown and some of my uh, uh, other business and, and associates here in Memphis, and one of them was uh, uh, Major League Baseball umpire who has been off work since the, all of this started. And a lot of people don't realize this. Those guys have not been getting paid. Mm. Nothing. Mm. It's crazy. And uh, so anyway, he's starting back. Uh, he's leaving next week. And he's uh, he's headed to uh, – he's, he's actually headed up to St. Louis. And it was amazing. He's been – he said just been constantly on, uh, you know, on – conference calls and and uh, zoom calls and all of this stuff for the last week the last few weeks trying to get all of this straightened out and he said there's going to be so many rule changes and and different things that are going to happen with the with once the season starts of course it's already shortened down to 
a 60 game season and then the playoffs. And then there's some, uh, different rule changes as far as, uh, uh well, like if it goes into extra innings, uh, in the top of the 10th inning, you're going to start with a man on, on second base, uh, to start the inning. So, you know, I mean, you, you could pick one pitch and the guy could steal third and then just a fly ball out could end, the, you know, won't end the game, but it'll get the other, but it'll shorten all of the, uh, the opportunities to have long, drawn out extra inning games. Uh, I mean, there's, he, he's telling me there's just, there's even going to be rules put in place where the players aren't going to be allowed to spit. Oh, really? I mean, how, how can you watch a baseball game where the players don't spit? I know. I mean, whether, whether they're chewing tobacco or whether they're, whatever it is, it's just a, you know, that, that or, or the pitchers are not going to be able to lick their fingers before they throw a pitch. It's, there's, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be fun to watch in the fact that it's going to be so different. Uh, but, uh, I don't think all the players are going to be able to sit in the dugout. The players are going to have to sit in the stands six feet, six feet apart, uh, until it's their time to either go out on the field or come up the bat. And the only place, there's only two instances where players can be, uh, closer than six feet apart. And that's if there's a runner on first base and the uh, first baseman has to hold, try to hold the runner at first. Those players can be in close contact and of course the batter and the catcher. But other than that, everybody's got to stay at least six feet apart. If the, if the catcher wants to go out to the pitcher and talk, uh, he can't go up onto the dirt of the mound. He's got to stay back and I guess hold their glove up and, and talk through the gloves or whatever. But, uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be unique. Uh, so, not just the rest of the world's changing. Everything that's gonna happen now is gonna be changing. That all, that all sounds doable to me. But how are we gonna have basketball? You can't do that stuff in basketball. No, you're right. There's no way to keep six foot of social distancing in in the game of basketball or football. Uh, My gosh, I hope we're able to safely bring sports back because I'm I'm struggling. Uh, I need my sports eventually here. I'm watching Australian what? football. <laughs> yep, I'm watching a little Korean baseball. So you're right. It's a, it's a struggle. It, it is. It's, it's something you really miss. All right. Well, we, well what about oh, what, what about the wrestling world? How's that going? How's it affecting? I see people are testing positive and testing negative, and uh, you look at the internet and it's blowing up about you know. Uh, what 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 is going on with the uh, the wrestling world as far as this uh, crazy COVID nineteen is concerned? But um, uh, we still we we still have shows every week. We have uh, you know we have the 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 live Raw and the live SmackDown and and of course uh, NXT. So that's 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 what I'm saying. Before we're just I think this is going to be our new normal and. Everybody's just going to have to live with this and, and do the best we can. Yeah, it's uh, it's a weird thing because it's like, you know, here in Illinois, we, we are allowed to go to restaurants and gyms are opening up. So it's like people are being together. So at this point, the fact that they're having wrestling shows isn't that controversial, I wouldn't think as much. Although I know some states like California and New York are going back you know, back in the phases and kind of reinstituting bans of certain things. 
Well, yeah, that's that's the other thing that you you know, if you watch the news, it's just consumed with the you know the stories about the the virus and the spikes and 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 that sort of thing and what's you know what's what's causing the spikes. That's another thing they'll they'll never really know. That's just somebody's that's just somebody's opinion on what causes the spikes. But I guess they do. They are able to trace some things back to, um, you know, uh, to social gatherings or parties or that sort of thing, uh, to, to how something will make an outbreak. But that's, that's the other thing that, um, that the baseball, uh, people said that they're going to reserve the right. Major League Baseball is going to reserve the right that if say my, you know, my favorite team is in Cleveland, Cleveland Indians, and they're going to reserve the right to say, that if there's a, if there's a surge or a spike in the coronavirus cases in Cleveland, Ohio, they're going to reserve the right to make the Indians go and play in another city where they're not, uh, you know, where there's not a spike. I so somebody get get thrown out of your own city because a team could get thrown out and have to play in, you know, Cleveland may have to go down and play in, in Cincinnati or over in Detroit or something like that. If, if there was a, I'm just saying if there were a surge in, in that particular city. I keep thinking about what you said when this first started. The, the, what was it? The proverb, the, the curse of may you live in interesting times. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> we are, we, it, it is def- very interesting. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Hey, another thing, um, uh, speaking of interesting, I want to tell everybody that, uh, this is, we, we've been two months, of a layoff on the podcast. I've been, I can't tell you how many months that my web, kingjerrylawler.com, my website has been down, uh, but it's back up and running. Uh, back up and got my store is open on there where you get the t-shirts, uh, autographed pictures, mystery boxes, all that stuff is up. And, uh, if you wanted to check that out, it's kingjerrylawler.com. We are back with that and I'm happy to say and, uh, uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, I, I, uh, I, this is, I know we're going to spend some time on this because, um, it was big news just last week or so about, of course, the Undertaker, you know, with that, that fabulous piece that they had on the WWE network about uh, the life and times of the Undertaker. I guess at the end of that, he basically said he's wrestled his last match. Yeah, he, it was interesting. He just, he said he considered himself done, but he would come back if Vince really needed him. But then on on Raw and SmackDown, they had the announcers very clearly say that was his last match. So I don't know if Vince is just kind of like, you know, he, he got the perfect farewell and we're not going to mess with that and it's, it's over. So unless something crazy happens, it seems like, uh, We've seen the the last of the Undertaker in the ring. Yeah, which was our topic uh, today. Yes, you're right. And speaking of, of of saying what you said, we've seen the last of the Undertaker in the ring. I didn't even I didn't even think about this, but uh, the last the last Raw that I was on, uh, apparently that was the last time the Undertaker was in a WWE ring. Oh, that, uh, oh, yeah. 
and remember there was a there was a table sitting out there, and uh, I was supposed to, I guess, moderate uh, some sort of was it I don't know if it was a contract signing or whatever, but anyway then uh, Taker came out and threw the uh, you know threw the the table out of the ring and all that sort of stuff, and then I, I of course got out of the ring as well. But apparently that particular that particular show or at, at that time was the last time that Undertaker was in a WWE wrestling ring. That is, that is interesting. I didn't even connect the dots on that. So the last time the Undertaker was in a WWE ring as an active wrestler was that segment where you introduce him. And he just storms out, not doing his entrance at all, throws the table over, and they cut to commercial. Right. And you got the heck out of there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Um, that was, uh, well, that was, that was March 16th was the date of that Raw. March I'm looking 16th. here now. On, I'm, looking, I'm looking back on, um, uh, and that's the last time Undertaker was actually in the uh, WWE ring. 316, that was the show that uh, Steve Austin must have been on. That's right, and that's when... Um, and, well, then what was... what? what see, I'm looking now. I'm lo- actually looking at the video right now of me standing there, this crazy jacket, and The Undertaker. That was not the last Raw I was on, as a matter of fact. Um, but anyway, then The Undertaker throws the tables... I get the heck out of the ring. I say, all right, I'm out of here. Um, and then was that later on was when Stone Cold came out and, um, Becky Lynch came out and didn't he, did, did, is that the one where he gave the, um, stunners to poor old Byron? <laughs> yes. Well, now what, this is what's, what's confusing me now. Then what was, what was the Undertaker coming out there to do? Was it sign some sort of contract? I think so. I think that was uh, him and AJ were going to do a contract signing. And then what happened with that match? Well, for I I don't remember. For some reason, Undertaker threw the table down, and I I don't remember what the follow up was. And then we had the Boneyard match. Okay, that's so. Then that's that's right. Those, so the Boneyard match followed this, right? Followed uh, me and him being in the ring, right? But the Boneyard match. So basically the Boneyard match was his last match, but it wasn't in a ring. Right. There you go. That's, that's, that's the explanation of this. So this was the last time Undertaker was actually in a ring, a WWE ring. There it was. You were there for history again. Yeah. And I was there on, uh, let's see, that's looking back on February 18th, 1989. That was one of the first matches that uh, I was in the ring once again wrestling against. Well, the guy that later on became the Undertaker. One of his one of his earliest matches. He came through Memphis as Mean Mark, and uh, Mean Mark who went on to be the master of pain. Uh, but yeah, we we had him there in Memphis, and I had his first match on Memphis TV. With uh, Mean Mark, and then I'm in this in the ring with him. It's the last time he ever got in the WWE ring. 
So that was quite an honor. That was pretty cool. That is. That is. I'm glad you uh, put that together. I did not even think about that, that that thing with him and you was uh, was his last match. Anybody out there wants to see these tweets, if you don't follow me on Twitter, it's simple. It's just at Jerry Lawler, and go back and look. It's so cool because there's two pictures. Uh, there's a picture of me standing face-to-face with The Undertaker in the ring on March the 16th of 2020, and there's a picture of me standing face-to-face with him on February 18th, 1989, and I swear to you, he has got the exact same look on his face in both, <laughs> in both of those pictures as he's looking at me. He's looking at me in both those pictures, and it's the exact same look on his face in both those pictures. It's really cool. This is the Jerry Lawler Show. We'll start at the beginning. You and him had a, a feud in Memphis in early 1989. I was telling you before we started, I wish there was footage of this match on February 13th, 89, where you and Robert Gibson faced Ricky Morton and the Master of Pain. What a what a group of legends all together at the Mid-South Coliseum. But, uh, wow, yeah. And that was something, uh, apparently, I don't remember the exa- all of the backstory of that, but apparently that's how we brought in uh, Mark as the Master of Pain uh, because of the, the beat that I had with Ricky Morton. It was like supposedly Ricky Morton says, well, I got, I, I know this guy that I'm going to have come in here to take care of Lawler. And then, of course, when, when he shows up, we had him with, uh, gosh, we had him, we had him with Dutch Mantel as his manager and we had him with Ronnie P. Gossett. Oh my gosh. Ronnie P. Gossett was the funniest guy, uh, uh, ever. One of our funniest managers ever. Poor Ronnie's passed away, but, uh, I know I've, uh, over the years I've had Mark sitting, me and him sit in the dressing room and we'd tell, swap back Ronnie P. Gossett stories. Uh, there, there were some great ones with, with Ronnie P. managing him. And then, and, and, uh, one of my favorite memories from that, from that, uh, little feud there was, and then, and this is on, this is on YouTube. You can go and look this up. Just look up, uh, the, I, th- I think Undertaker meets Humongous or, or Mean Mark meets Humongous or whatever. But anyway, it was, uh, there's Ronnie P. Gossett and, and Dutchman Taylor standing out there with Mark, the Undertaker, before he was the Undertaker. And he's big, big, towering, you know, look like a Superman, mean as he could be, just scary looking. And so then I come out and I say, well, you know what? Yeah, you got the, you got yourself a big guy. Well, I got some big friends too. And suddenly they play the music and out comes Humongous, which was, of course, Sid Vicious. As Sid was just getting started, we put the Humongous gimmick on him and oh my gosh, did he look awesome. It was amazing. And suddenly, you know, Mark's standing there and, and here comes, here comes Sid as Humongous with that hockey mask on. And he comes around the ring, and suddenly they got that big face-off, you know, eye-to-eye, toe-to-toe between uh, Mean Mark, who would later on become The Undertaker, and Sid Vicious, who was humongous at the time. It's just a, it was just a great piece of footage, a great thing to watch. Yeah, that was an awesome, awesome segment and face-off they had. And then 
uh, eight years later, they're headlining WrestleMania, which I was at because it was at uh, the old Rosemont Horizon, as we called it then, in Chicago, and you were announcing. So wow. uh, came full circle again. <laughs> came full circle again. You're right. Yeah, that, that and, and speaking of announcing, uh, you know, that was that was some of the coolest things to announce uh, to commentate on. Gosh, just about all of the big matches of uh, Mark or the Undertaker's career over the years. That was it was really something. And uh, when he when he was getting started in Memphis and was still young, I, I mean, you worked with a million guys. Somebody every week you had to have a big match with. Um, did he stand out to you as someone that you thought had a, a promising future or or anything like that? Well, at, at the time, you know, I thought. And I'm sure it was one of the first, but apparently Mark started, uh, down in Dallas. Somebody kind of put up, when I put up that tweet I was talking about showing me and Mark saying one of my, uh, or, or showing Ronnie P. Gossett as, as, uh, one of Mark's first managers, somebody put up a tweet and corrected me saying that his, he actually started his first few matches were in Dallas and Percy Pringle, uh, Percy Pringle the third is what he was going as at that time, who also later on went on to become, uh, Paul Bearer. That Percy Pringle managed Mark in his first match ever at the, at the Dallas Sportatorium. And of course, that's when we were working in conjunction with, uh, WCCW down there and the Von Ericks. And, uh, so that's, I guess, why, you know, he, he started there, but then it immediately came up to Memphis and we had him on TV. And no, I, I, I mean, yeah, there's, there's certain people that you can just, um, I mean, yeah, you, that you just have that feeling and trust me. And he'll tell you himself, he was green as grass when he, you know, when he came to Memphis, he was just, just had a few matches under his belt, but just, just the size, just, you know, just the size. And the look and the, and his personality, I mean, you just, you knew that this guy was going to be something special. I mean, whether it was as the undertaker or, I mean, I, I believe that he could have been just as successful had he stayed, you know, mean Mark Calloway or the master of pain or whatever. But, uh, of course the, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't ask for anything, any better gimmick, so to speak, than, uh, than the Undertaker, but yeah, I knew simply because of his size and especially how he, how it would work in the Memphis territory. Because we, you know, I I I always uh, I felt like I was always against you know bigger guys, and and that was my my forte, so to speak, is you know kind of being the underdog. Going against the bigger guys, that's why we, you know, created guys like Kamala and Crusher Jerry Blackwell came in and uh, Big Jola Duke and all. I I just always work better against bigger guys. I and love yeah, Bam Bigelow together. Oh yeah, Bam Bam Bigelow was something else, man. But yeah, I mean, you know, just being in the ring right off the bat and having him be able to, you know, show his strength and size and just pick you up and 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 walk around the ring before he. Uh, finish uh, body slamming you or, you know, me punch him in the face and him not sell it. Uh, he just stare at me and, and, you know, I, I yeah, I, I knew that this was going to be special. 
One of one of, one of my fondest memories also was him. Uh, he and I we did our Saturday morning TV, and uh, we we worked a promotion with uh, there was a, a a water park here in Memphis called Adventure River, and they had uh, they had set up a personal appearance and an actual wrestling match at their water park for like one o'clock in the afternoon right after wrestling went off, wrestling came on at 11 and, and went off the air at 1230. And we just had to jump in our cars, rush right over. It was maybe four or five miles over to where this uh, water park was. And the, the attraction there at the water park was a, a match. We had a ring set up and the match was me against mean Mark or against Mark Calloway and the ring, they had set up the ring right at the top and on the edge of this big wave pool hmm. that everybody could be in there, right? And, it, 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 you know, at the at the one end of the wave pool where the waves would start from, the water was pretty deep. And so the ring was sitting up on top of that, and all the people could, all the, I mean, there were literally thousands of people that came out for this thing, and they could all be in the back or the front part of the wave pool and watch the match. And the way we had the winner uh, or the loser would get thrown over the top rope, out of the ring, and into the wave pool. <laughs> I, I, had, so, I had no idea about this happening. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so it turned out that was me and Mark. Uh, you know, we were on top at the time. We go out there to do this match. And they had set the ring up probably at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And it was right in the middle of summer. I mean, it was probably 95 degrees that day at one o'clock in the afternoon when we went out there to wrestle and the mat cover of the, of the ring that we were wrestling on was like one of those sort of a vinyl type thing. And, and, and it was white and the sun was just had been beaten down on that for three straight hours, 95 degrees. So the, the mat cover itself was probably, I'm guessing 130 degrees. It literally was like, wrestling in a frying pan or on a skillet. And so, uh, needless to say, after we both took a couple of bumps on that, it turned out to be a, a stand-up match. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's how hot it was. And not only that, it turned out to, it turned into a, it turned into a match to where he and I were both trying to be the one to get thrown over the, out of the ring and into the pool. So, uh, uh, that, that, that was one of our, we, we both still laugh about that, about how hot that ring was and, and, and how, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, supposed to throw him into the pool, but we were both then, after we felt how hot the ring was, I told him, throw me in the pool. He said, no, 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 you're going to throw me in the pool. <laughs> I said, no, no, throw me in the pool. But, uh, it, it was, it was a fun match, but, uh, yeah, well, there's a, a lot of good stories of him in Memphis. He, st- you know, he stayed there. He stayed there quite a while. He really honed his uh, skills there in Memphis. Isn't there some story I read in, a, in Dutch Mantel's book about it? he and Taker were driving some night and, like, ten cop cars came and, like, pulled guns and made them lay on the street or something, and they never found out why, and the cops just left? You know what? I'm sure that, I mean, if Dutch said it happened, it probably happened, but that would be one of those things that, at the time, Dutch or, uh, or Mark would not 
would not want to tell anybody about the next day. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if I know that back in the day, if I was just uh, back when I was working for Nick Goulas, if I'd got stopped by 10 policemen and been pulled out of my car and told to lay on the ground, I would not tell anybody about it if they let me go, you know. So, uh, I, I'd never really heard that story, but I, 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 I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, we had, we had, we had some crazy road stories back in the day. I mean, there's just uh, crazy things would happen. Jackie Fargo was the master of, of doing, you know, crazy things on the road. And I know, I know one time I, I got, uh, as far as like getting stopped by cops and that sort of thing. I, I used to, I used to, well, as a matter of fact, I still have this crazy collection of these, uh, these fantastic looking horror masks. I'm Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, and all of this sort of stuff. And, uh, I would always, I would always have some of those in my car with me. And I would, I would be, it, it was, it was crazy the things that we would do back then. I, I was famous for, uh, being driving, driving down the interstate. And if you can, before every car had this console and gear shift in the middle of the car, um, there was just a, there was just a little hump in your floorboard where the drive shaft went by and your front seat was just one long seat. You know, you could sit three people in the front seat at that time. So I would, I would be driving down the interstate and I'd sit, catch a time when nobody would, you know, no cars would be around me or whatever. So I would slide, I would hold the, my steering wheel with the bottom, at the bottom of the part of the steering wheel <clears throat> with my left hand. I would slide all the way over to the right side of the car and I just had my foot on the gas reaching all the way across to, to be able to push, push on the gas and hold the wheel with my left hand down at the bottom of the wheel. And I would slide all the way over to where I'm sitting in the passenger side and I'd stick my arm out the window. And as I pass cars, then I'd just look over and wave at people and there'd be nobody driving. It would look like nobody was driving. So anyway, then one day I really got bold and I put on this werewolf mask. <laughs> I put on this werewolf mask and I slide all the way over and I put my arm out the window and I'm passing cars. And, uh, and, and of course, you know, the people look over and not only do they see a werewolf sitting in the car, there's nobody driving the car, right? It's going, it's going down the interstate 80 miles an hour. So, um, uh, I, I was laughing my, you know, riding by myself doing this, just, just, I don't even know, just to, you know, to, just to try to see the reaction on people's face. And then, uh, I, I'd gotten back over, uh, I'd done it for, you know, for a few miles. Then I'd gotten back over, take the mask off and I'm still driving. All of a sudden I look up, here come the blue lights behind me. Highway patrol pull me over. And, uh, and, and of course the guy gets out and he sees who I was and he said, Jerry, I got to ask you a question. I said, what? He said, do you have a werewolf mask in your phone? <laughs> and uh, I I just, I lied. I said, a werewolf mask? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, well, he said, they didn't get a license number, but somebody called in. Somebody called in and said that there's a car that matched your description that's been driving around the interstate wearing a werewolf mask. And I said, 
Man, I don't know, but if I see it, I'll, I'll be sure to call you about it. But I mean, we just, so we just did stupid stuff all the time. I never forget Jackie Fargo was the best. Jackie Fargo, he used to, like if he would pass, I'll never forget, it was me and Jackie riding back to Nashville one night and we passed Jerry Jarrett and Tojo Yamamoto. And so Jackie, when we passed him, Jackie would speed up. He'd go a hundred miles an hour and he'd get up about 10 miles in front of where, you know, in front of them. And then he'd pull off the interstate, jump out of the car, peel off all his clothes, strip down, butt naked, completely naked. And then stand out on the, stand out on the interstate, uh, with his, with with his legs tucked, uh, tucked together there and be, and he had this long blonde hair and he stand, it looked like, actually looked like a woman standing there naked and he would stand there and hitchhike, be hitchhiking right on the side of the internet, on the side of the interstate as Tojo and, uh, Jerry Jarrett would go by. Uh, and then of course he'd run, get in his car and here we go again. But this, Man, there's just crazy, stupid stuff to try to pass the time, you know. But, uh, yeah, so if, so if Mark and, and Dutch got pulled over, I would love to hear the story of what they were doing to get pulled over by 10 cops. Yeah, I, uh, it's just a vague memory I have of reading his, uh, I'm actually seeing if I can Google it right now. Um, <laughs> let's see, on Dutch Mantel on being stopped with the Undertaker. Uh, all right, so it says, um, you know, he was his manager. Taker was master of pain. who served five years in the United States Penitentiary in Atlanta for a double murder. Um, yeah, that that was the that was his background story that I gave him that morning when he got the TV. He had no idea that was you know he had no idea what uh, he was going to come in as. He just thought he was coming in as Mark Calloway. So I you know I told him I said, listen, here's your here's your background. You're going to go out and you're going to tell everybody that you've been in prison down in Georgia. Uh, and I'll never forget the story. I said, I said, tell them just when Lance asked you what happened, you say, well, let me just say I got in a fight with a couple of guys in a parking lot and now they're pushing up daisies. And, and he, and he looked at me and said, pushing up daisies. And I said, yeah, you know, just, just they're, you know, they're dead. They're pushing up daisies. And he said, oh, okay, okay. So anyway, that was, he went out, he delivered the lines perfectly and, and that was, uh, you know, that was the, the, the background story on mean Mark Calloway. He'd been in prison for several years. So just briefly the story here, since I, we've teased it, uh, they were driving south on the way back to Nashville and all of a sudden there were five police cars and the officer said <laughs> over the loudspeaker to get out of the car with our hands behind <laughs> our heads. Uh, Taker was handcuffed as was Dutch. What? And one of the troopers had his Glock pointed downward as he approached us. Um, and it says, uh, unbeknownst to them, a fellow driver had erroneously reported that two men uh, were in possession of a weapon and were brandishing their gun at motorists. It says that Mark and I had long hair and do-rags, so we looked like Hell's Angels. Oh, my gosh. Did they have, did it say, did they actually have a gun in the car? Or was it a was it another wrestler that was like pulling a rib on him? It must. I don't know what it was. Uh, it doesn't say that they had a, a gun. Like they had no idea why they were being pulled over. That that's that's another thing that wrestlers used to do to each other. They would. Uh, this was this was in the days of the big CB radios. And man, you could just you know you you you'd be on there 
talking to each other and, and, uh, oh my gosh, I never forget one time I, I was, I saw Thomas Marlin, who was one of Eddie Marlin's brother and he was a referee for us. And I saw him driving down the, driving down the road and uh, driving down the interstate. We were on our way to Louisville and I, I knew Thomas didn't have a CB radio, right? So, and he was driving like a, I don't know, a Ford, uh, Ford Fairlane or something in the white Ford Fairlane. He's driving along. I went by and I waved at him and, uh, and he waved and I just went, kept going. All of a sudden I get on my CB radio and I start talking the, the worst stuff you can imagine about truck drivers, right? <laughs> he said, I said, I am so sick of you stinking truck drivers hogging the road like you own it. You know, get the hell off the road. You know, and he said, I, I'm, I'm in a hurry. As a matter of fact, I spent too long at a truck driver's house with his wife, and now I'm, I'm running late. So get up, move over, get off the road. And all of a sudden, the truck driver would come on and say, oh, is that so? Who is it? Tell us who you are. You won't be talking so tough. So we argued back and forth, and the, the language got a little worse and a little more profane. And the next thing you know, I said, oh, if you truck drivers think you're so tough, well, just come on up and find me. I'm driving the white Ford uh, Fairlane, and I'm heading on north on I-65. So I won't be hard to find. You just pull over, and I'll pull over. Oh, my gosh. You know, I described Thomas Marlin's car, and all of a sudden he said, within about five minutes, three trucks pinned him in and pulled him over to the side of the road. And he said they would have they would have killed him, he said. He said, but I finally had to convince him and show him that he didn't actually have it. He didn't even have a CB radio. So we, somebody probably, somebody probably was pulling one of the other wrestlers. Uh, I hope it wasn't me was probably pulling a rib on those two guys to, uh, to, to call the cops. Cause you could, you know, you could get on another channel and actually call for the, call for the uh, law enforcement on those CB radios. A lot of miles back in those days. Okay. Yes. <laughs> a lot of fun times. Had to uh, kill a lot of time. Oh man, the trips they just seemed endless. So, yeah, we did we we thought of anything that we could think of to to kill the time. So, um, you know, you're uh, such a unique person to talk with about Taker because you worked with him when he was starting and then you announced so many of his most famous matches were ringside. Um, what do you think of the Undertaker gimmick because you were kind of old school, protect the business, but you also had, you know, your Dr. Frank and your, uh, Oh, yeah. So no, I, I love, I love the Undertaker gimmick from the get go because I was, uh, I mean, when you say I was old school and protect your gimmick, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did think like that, but, uh, I would love different kinds of gimmicks and, and the more outlandish, the better. Like you said, you know, those, the Wolfman mask that I was talking about wearing when I was riding up down this road, somebody had probably just wrestled in it that Monday night at the, at the Coliseum because, yeah, I, I used all, I loved those kind of uh, gimmicks, uh, putting, uh, you know, putting a, putting the same gimmick on a wrestler that, that I'd seen in the movie. I mean, we had Dr. Frank as Frankenstein. We wrestled, we had the mummy, of course, the, they had wrestled, they had wrestlers as the mummy years before, uh, uh, before I, I, we started doing. Matter of fact, Plowboy Frazier, Stan Frazier, no, he wrestled as the convict, not the mummy. But anyway, uh, we had people wrestling as the mummy, um, oh man, Freddy Krueger, 
Jason from uh, from uh, Friday the 13th. Uh, I love those kind of gimmicks. And so the, the Undertaker, the horror part of it, uh, and the scary part of it was right down my alley. I love that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's often been said by it's probably a general consensus that the Undertaker's entrance is the best there has ever been in, in, uh, by anybody in wrestling. I mean, it's still to this day, it'll send chills up and down people's spine when they sit and they hear that, that gong. And then, the, of course, that, that music and the lights go down and the fire. And I mean, yeah, it's just, I, I love the Undertaker gimmick. And you know, back, one, another favorite Undertaker story of mine, and I'll really test some people. This will be like a trivial pursuit question. See how your memory goes. And you can look this up on YouTube if you, if you've never heard anything about it because it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, do you remember, Sean, the time that I was, I was conducting an interview with Paul Bearer? And, uh, this was, I guess, at a time, time when Paul Bearer had sort of turned against the Undertaker. And, and I don't know if Kane was involved, but I think it was just the Undertaker at the time. But Paul Bearer had sort of turned against him. And I was conducting an interview with Paul in the back. And we're just sitting in the locker room and they did a deal where like they cut to a commercial break, but they didn't turn the cameras off and the microphone off. And we didn't realize we were still on the air. And, and, uh, Paul Bear and I started talking about, uh, the undertaker and, and, and him, him, uh, he started saying that he had actually had sex with the undertaker's mother and that's uh, that's how you know that's how he came about or how Kane came about or something one of, one of the two but anyway um that was a, that was a crazy interview about the undertaker and then of course after that we realized that that actually aired which of course it was supposed to but anyway uh, then there was some heat between the undertaker and I and he came out and I think choke slammed me uh, on, uh, the, the next week as I was out there doing a King's Court or something like that. But that interview is one of the funniest things ever that I can remember doing, uh, you know, in conjunction with The Undertaker. Funniest things ever about, uh, uh, I mean, it was one of those interviews, one of the things, certainly couldn't, couldn't be, you wouldn't be able to do it, uh, in today's, uh, environment. But it was, you know, it was every kind of sexual innuendo that you can think of about two people uh, making love or whatever between uh, Paul Bearer and the Undertaker's mom, so to speak. So if you get a chance, go back and look at that. And that's uh, that, that may have been. I don't know if that was leading up to, but one of the only, I think one of the only times I really worked had a match against the Undertaker was a was a casket match. And, uh, that was, matter of fact, it's on, it's on, uh, that match is on The Undertaker's, one of his DVDs that said, I don't know, he buried them all or something like that. But anyway, that was, uh, that was a, uh, yeah, I don't know, just like a, we didn't really have that much build up to that match, but it was just, it was, it was a fun match. I wasn't too crazy about getting put in a casket at the time. Hmm. I was, I was, one of, I was one of those kind of people that's, had a little bit of a, uh, a little bit leery of it. I just had funny feelings about 
being in an actual casket and having the lid closed on you, you know. But but that's what happens when you wrestle the Undertaker in a casket match. So you get uh, you get buried one way or the other. Yeah, I've never thought about uh, how that is for the person who has to be closed in a casket and wheeled to the back. I guess that would be a little uh, awkward. Yeah. It's uh, awkward is not the word for it. Unnerving, <laughs> I think it's the better word. You just, uh, I mean, you know, at least I did. You know, I'm, I'm all of a sudden sitting, in, in, laying inside that casket, and boom, the lid comes down, and it's totally dark, and this, you just think, oh my gosh, this is, uh, this is bad. <laughs> you just, this is, it's just, that's what I thought. This is bad. This is not good. Let me get out of here. And we were talking about that thing with Paul Bear. We can't tell the story of The Undertaker without talking about how great Paul Bear was. Uh, he was just perfect as The Undertaker's oh. manager. You couldn't, could have done any better with anybody else. No, the makeup, the look, and, and, uh, and, and all of that stuff. Um, it's, it's so funny. I saw a thing. I mean, you never know how this stuff comes about, but I saw a picture. Of uh, it, apparently it was like an old horror movie host from maybe back in the fifties or, or early sixties, and he he was called the Undertaker, but he had the makeup that looked almost just like Paul Bearer. It was a black and white picture of this guy, and I I, I wanted to go back and look at some uh, uh, look look up the history of who this guy was and where he came where it came about, but it, it, when I saw it, I thought somebody must have seen this guy or seen this picture of this guy, and, and that's how they came up with the look and the and the makeup and everything of, of Paul Bearer. But, yeah, uh, he was he was perfect for that role. And the funny thing goes, everybody, nobody never called him Paul Bearer, of course, never called him Paul or anything. Everybody, he was always his entire life, he was Percy. He was Percy Pringle, which was the you know the first gimmick that he ever came up with for himself, and 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 he he remained Percy Pringle to everybody uh, throughout his entire life, really. Uh, but yeah, uh, the the pairing of of uh, Paul Bear and the Undertaker was perfect. And we can't talk about the Undertaker. Uh, I know you've probably talked about this a billion times, but uh, Hell in the Cell '98 with Mick Foley, what are you thinking as Mick Foley is coming off that cage in your direction? Well, you're right. I mean, and and when I try to think back about how many matches I called uh, of The Undertaker with with Michael Cole and, of course, with good old JR and and all of these uh, matches, I mean, it ran the whole gamut, gamut, of course, of, you know, the – the original Undertaker, and then the you know he had the different gimmicks. What were all of the American Badass? He came in the on the motorcycle, and and uh, you know he went through some different incarnations throughout his career. But of course, then he always you know he he always came back to um, to to the Undertaker, and I would have to say that that's probably. Uh, Without a doubt, one of the most iconic moments in the history of the WWE and wrestling in general um, was that that call that Jr. and I did when when poor Mankind was thrown off of the top of the uh, the cage there 
by by the Undertaker. I just saw a tweet of that uh, ESPN ESPN Network tweeted out that call and that video of uh, mankind being thrown off of the uh, hell in a cell, and it had 1.1 million views wow. in like less less than a week. And uh, it just said, you know, this was an iconic call. And honestly, um, yeah, uh, I, I thought I, when I saw him coming down, you know, that that, that was another one of those things where uh, I think maybe Jr. might have been in the production meeting. I was not. I had no idea that that uh, that's how he was going to come down off the hell in the cell. You know, and I'm 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 just like everybody else calling it, watching them when they climbed up to the top. I did. I'm thinking, you know, what are they going to do? How are they going to how are they how are they going to climb back down, or what? You know, how are they going to get out of this? And when the Undertaker threw uh, Mick off there and through that table, I, you know, I thought he was dead. I really did. I said, oh my God, he's dead. Um, and bang, he you know he, he laid there. And, uh, you know, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, didn't Terry Funk come out and try to f- see about him or something? Yeah, they had been doing the thing acknowledging that yeah. he was a mentor, and uh, he ate a choke slam to, like, kill time while Mick Foley tried to regain consciousness, I think. Right. But I'll never forget uh, the first time that I saw Mick's face and realized that he was not dead – was he, he turned over and and rolled over and it was the way he did he, and he and I made eye contact for just a second and that, and his eye, you know and his eyes were open and so you know I, I I didn't think he was all right but I knew he wasn't dead but we made eye contact and all of a sudden he smiled he just this this like a little mischievous little smile and then when he smiled. His tooth was gone. His front tooth was gone. And I looked closer and it was sticking out of his nose. His front tooth was knocked up into his mouth and it was coming, hanging out of his nose. It was just, it was just unbelievable. And he's smiling and he's, and he's smiling, you know, and it was like, Oh my God, this guy is, this is, this is crazy. This is just something else. It's just, you know, a sight you'll never forget. And, then, and of course, uh, obviously, looking up, <laughs> which looked like it was a mile in the air from, you know, from the ringside. And there's the Undertaker just staring down at Mick like like it was like the, I don't know, it was, it was like as if you see the uh, the specter of the Grim Reaper. You know, death has come to, and to stare you right in the face. That's what it was like looking up at the Undertaker, and um, and, and I'm all blurry on whatever happened after that because honestly, I was so shocked at, at that thing. But didn't isn't that the same match that Mick? Didn't they go back up on top and then he fell through the cage? Yes, perhaps a little overkill. So first he throws him off the cage uh, through the announce table. They get the stretcher out there, start taking him to the back. He gets off the stretcher uh, and climbs back up the cage. And then they do the thing where Mick has said, I don't know if this is 
him just trying not to get in trouble with his wife or if it was really what was supposed to happen that it was just supposed to be like Undertaker pushing him onto the cage and then it slowly like falling down and him just kind of rolling onto the mat. But of course that's not what happened. He just went straight through the thing. Oh, right into I'm, the I'm ring. Tell, honestly, I honestly believe, and I've never really talked to either one of them about that. Uh, but I honestly believe that that wasn't supposed to happen like that. I believe that cage broke. And if I'm not mistaken, that may have been where I said, oh, my God, he's dead, because I really thought that he had broken his neck the way he the way he fell through there and landed. I mean, that was that that to me was a much tougher, a, a much more severe and a harder bump than going through the table. It was it was that was insane. I And that was another thing. I, that I had no clue that that was going to happen like that. And that's when I, I thought this, you, you said the word that was a little overkill. I, and, and I think it would have been overkill and it may have looked like it was overkill to some people because I really don't think that they had intended for that to, to happen that way. And it's just so fortunate and so lucky for everybody that, that Mick didn't, you know, have real, real serious injury from that. I mean, you can imagine if he had landed just a little bit more on the back of his neck, oh. boom. Yeah. And what people forget is they went another, like, 10 <laughs> to 15 minutes after that and got thumbtacks involved. I, I think Mick got chokeslammed onto thumbtacks or tombstone. So. Yeah, there's been, there's been some crazy matches in the WWE, in the history of the WWE. But to me, if you just asked me and I had to, I had to say which was the, craziest or the most insane match that I've ever witnessed, uh, that would be it. Yeah. I, Mick Foley uh, tells a funny story about how uh, Terry Funk took a choke slam and, like, his shoes fell off, and he just woke up and remembers seeing these shoes in the ring and having no idea where they came from or who they <laughs> belonged to. Um, God, I don't uh, know how he made it through that. What a tough guy. Yeah, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. And then Undertaker uh, obviously, you know, had to do everything that he could as a veteran to get Mick through the rest of the match alive, you know, protecting exactly. him. Exactly. And you mentioned Terry Funk. Oh, my gosh. And then he's been involved in some crazy matches as well. Uh, but but that – and I guess this the other day was Terry Funk's birthday. So uh, if he's listening – or if anybody out there knows, tell him that we said happy birthday. And he's still an egg-sucking dog as long as far as I'm <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, gosh, I guess you could go and talk about The Undertaker's career for weeks or months at a time on a, on a podcast. But uh, that there will never be another match. I don't, I don't see how any match could ever top what, people witnessed in that, that hell in a cell match. I hope nobody tries. No, exactly right. <laughs> that one can have the record. Just belongs to them. Uh, yep. And then when, when we're talking about you announcing memorable stuff from Taker's career, we got to talk about the streak. Uh, it was amazing oh. what they created with the streak. The fans were so emotionally invested every year in the Undertaker's match and uh, I was going to WrestleManias every year back then and, and, you know, the Shawn Michaels matches, the Triple H matches, 
Uh, and then obviously eventually the Brock one. I mean, they were just uh, such spectacles every year. With the, I mean, I, I still remember uh, the Triple H Hell in the Cell match they had. They did a thing where Shawn Michaels, as the special guest ref, hit him with a super kick. And then Triple H hit him with a pedigree. And everybody bought that the streak was over and Taker kicked out. And I just remember people just like jumping up and down. Just going crazy over that. I still vividly remember that specific spot from the match. Oh, yeah. I mean, the you know, everybody has their opinion uh, about the streak. And my own personal opinion, and, I, you know, I've, I've said it to a lot of people, um, and, and no, no, uh, nothing against Brock in any kind of way, but – I just, I never agreed with that. I never thought the streak should have been broken. And, and calling that match, that's another match that I said, you know, I went out there never, ever expecting that to happen. I, I just thought, I just thought that the streak was going to go until The Undertaker retired whenever he wanted to. Uh, so when that, when that happened, I, I was like that, you, you know, that guy they've shown his picture a hundred times or a thousand times. Uh, the, with his eyes like as big as saucers, yeah. when the look on his face. Well, that's the same look I had on my face when uh, when that three count went down. I was I was so totally shocked. I just uh, I, I I didn't I didn't see it coming. I didn't I didn't think it was good. And uh, but I mean, you know, who's who's to say? Well, I mean, what what do you think? Do you think that? If that if it hadn't happened, I mean he could have still continued on and had uh, as as still a greatest uh, as greater maybe even greater career than he than he had. What do you think? I don't know. I think they I think they got that one pretty right because I remember I was at that mania too, and when Brock hit the third F five on Undertaker, um, the crowd didn't even really buy into the, the idea that it was going to be a near fall because everyone was just so convinced that there was no way The Undertaker was ever going to lose. So when the referee hit the mat the third time, I mean, you could go back and watch it. I mean, people weren't even responding that much, and then he hits the third time, and everybody just stands up and just, like, looks around. Like, what just happened? Um, right. I, I, I mean, that's another one that I just remember – vividly just 60,000 70,000 people just like all looking at each other with their hands on their heads just being like did that really just happen after 20 years of you know watching this story play out and and now it's over um I remember the next match was a, a women's match and I felt oh. bad for them because no yeah. heat and people yeah, were yeah. like chanting for Undertaker just because you can't you can't end a twenty year story and then just move on to the next match and have us just forget about it. Even the main event with Daniel Bryan, who everybody had been, uh, you know, so vocally pulling for getting that opportunity, that match, the crowd wasn't really into for the first ten fifteen minutes until they had Triple H come out and interfere, and I think Stephanie took a bump, and then they got everybody into it. But uh, yeah, I'll yeah, well, that's because everybody was still in shock. Yeah. Yeah, it was, and then it was after, crazy. And then after that match ended, after that you're right, they did, Daniel Bryan and them did finally, uh, take their minds off of it and get everybody into their, into their match. But 
Then when the show was over, people went back into shock. Yeah. Sitting there thinking, did, did we just really witness what we think we saw or whatever? I think people didn't want to believe it. And they just, uh, it was the biggest shock ever. Yeah. And, uh, that was, that was one, one to remember for sure. Uh, uh, but I do, I do think that it really helped Brock a lot because he, he didn't have as much momentum as he should have. He lost his first match after he came back, and then he lost at WrestleMania the, the next year to Triple H. But after he broke the streak, they just went full-fledged forward with him and made him into a monster yeah. who just destroyed everybody and you know eliminates the first 15 people in the Royal Rumble and everything. So it, it was well paid off. If he was going to lose, they did get a lot of mileage out of it. Yeah, and you're right. I don't think that, I don't think that, uh, well, you said it perfect. If he was going to lose, he couldn't have lost to a more, a, a better, you know, a better superstar than Brock. That made, that made the most sense of anybody. But I, you know, I did the funny part of that question to me is if he was, if he were going to lose, I just, I would, I would love to have been sitting around and, and, and be a part of how that conversation came up and whose idea that was. Uh, have you ever heard any stories about that? Uh, I just remember uh, when Vince was on the Stone Cold podcast on the network, you know, they said, you know, whose decision or who came up with that? And Vince said it was me, you know, my, my call, obviously. I'm not sure if he's the one who uh, came up with the idea of having Brock beat him, but he was definitely behind it. And then Undertaker went to the hospital, and Vince that was uh, Vince went to the hospital with them. So you didn't have Vince in your ear for the rest of WrestleMania. Oh, that's right. You're right. You're right. So then we we finish off this career in a very unique manner. The Boneyard match. If, if you had told people ahead of time that the Undertaker's last match was going to be like a movie and not in a ring, most people would have probably thought that's not a fitting farewell. But instead, it would. It stole the weekend. People loved it. What do you think of Taker going out with that Boneyard match? Um, well, I mean, I really, really enjoyed that, uh, and I think that the way the you know the way that match was was put together, and the way the match was shot and filmed, or whatever, however you want to say it, um, I think that that really opened the door. For at least for me, when I saw that and uh, realized, you know, how it was shot, I said, well, heck, uh, Undertaker could, you know, he could have a match anytime he wanted to like this um, and, and you know, just change the situation, uh, change the, the um, you know, not don't not do it in a wrestling ring again, change, you know, change the. Uh, wherever the match was going to take place. And a guy could go on, he could be like, he could be like Sylvester Stallone. You know, he could just keep coming back and coming back and like the, the match would be like a movie. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, it was still really good for it. To, and, and, and really, uh, uh, I think most people bought that as being a fitting final match for the undertaker. I did, um, but I, I also think I, I also think that uh, that style 
of match that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, he, that didn't have to be his last match. He could, he could still go come back and do, uh, those kind of matches again. Yeah. I guess, you know, watching the, the documentary from the network, he, he was really torturing himself for those last couple of years about wanting to have like the, the great final farewell. Uh, you know, they kind of made it seem like it was supposed to be that match with Roman Reigns, but he was disappointed with it. You know, the Goldberg match in Saudi Arabia was not uh, a way to go out. So he finally had, he had an escape where he could go out. Everybody loved it. It it went perfectly with him, you know, putting his fist in the air and the Undertaker logo with fire behind him. And then he rides off on his motorcycle with Metallica playing. So in that sense, he, he finally got what he was looking for. I'll throw an idea out here that I had, well, we had it years ago. Terry Funk and I, when we were, when we had our, our stuff going so bad, he wanted to, uh, we, we kind of tossed the idea back and forth of, um, him making a, a threat to, uh, go and find, uh, my mother's house and, uh, and, and, and cutting an interview with my mother, asking her questions and things like that. And, uh, and what we were gonna what we were gonna do was find an old rundown house that of course nobody was still living in, just like an old shack, and um uh, then have Terry Funk like bring the camera crew, find this house, says, Can you believe this is Lawler's mother's house? You know, here's a big star Lawler, rich guy that he is, big shot, and he makes his mother live in this kind of filth and this kind of squalor and having go up knock on the door. Ms. Lawler, Ms. Lawler, are you in there? And then, uh, you know, then finally I would, uh, I would come driving up or whatever and almost like, almost like hitting with my car, run the car into the, into the house, then get out and he and I fight all through that house, tear up all this sort of stuff and everything. Almost like, you know, like we did the empty arena match. But, and I was just thinking, uh, you know, what a, what a cool thing they could do with the Undertakers. I have a guy like AJ say, you know, just demanding that he have one more match just, to, and, and, and have the Undertaker just said, no, I'm done. That's it. You know, and, and he just persists that he wants, he wants the Undertaker one more time. And the Undertaker said, no, you had your shot and you're not, and that's it. I'm not going to get back in a wrestling ring. And then, uh, uh, and then just have AJ say, well, you know what, whatever the pay-per-view is, is I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to come right to your house and, and make you have this match. And then, you know, then, you know, then you could, you could have a match where, boom, all of a sudden AJ, uh, goes to a house or that's supposed to be Undertaker's house and they, you know, they film a match, uh, basically a match, right? Right in inside a house, just tearing up stuff, and it just like a like a movie, just like they did the boneyard match. Yeah. Well, first off, I just want to say that I'm uh, sad that we did not get to see Terry Funk uh, torturing your mom because that sounds like it would have been tremendous. Um, yeah, wouldn't. It? But Do you know that he just, he just mentioned that like a month ago on the phone with me. Oh no. He said, "Yeah, I swear." He said, "You know." King, we could still do that match. <laughs> we could still do that. <laughs> I said, okay. 
uh, but yeah, that would, that would have been fun. But yeah, I mean, there's ways that, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad they left that in there, that little phrase in there. If Vince needs me, I would come back. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, after that uh, Boneyard match and everybody kind of thinking as you were thinking that this was something that could prolong his career, everybody started thinking about can we finally get the Sting match that everybody's just been kind of just asking for for like 10 years now uh, because now that would be a way to do it and hide any limitations due to age and Sting's bad neck. But uh, we'll see. Yeah, Sting could go to his house instead of AJ. There you go. (laughs) Movie match with those two. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I guess kind of wrapping up here, what uh, what do you think about, when you just think about the name Undertaker and his legacy, uh, what do you think about? Oh, my gosh. I, you know what? I'm the world's worst to ask about uh, legacy because I've never, I've never really, I've never really believed in that, so to speak. You know, people have asked me in the past, you know, what do you want your, uh, legacy to be and I said I've never I never thought about that uh but I mean you know I think that um when when people think about when people think about uh the undertaker they'll I mean you know I I put out a tweet myself that that uh you know he may have been one of the without a doubt one of the greatest of all time I mean you know if you had to put down a uh a Mount Rushmore of of wrestlers he would, I would certainly think that he would, or of, of WWE people at, at superstars, at least, uh, he would definitely be on that. Um, uh, you know, I just, uh, the cool thing about, uh, I mean, uh, I think it's different between fans and people that actually knew him in the business. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I always felt like, uh, you know, Mark and I were like never really close or hang out that much or ever, but, uh, you know, we'd be in the same locker rooms a lot of times, especially recently. Uh, he and I would always dress at the, in, uh, uh, you know, in the talent relations room where we're not around any other wrestlers and everything and we'd talk. You know, I felt that from, from the, from the get go, he and I have been friends, even though he's not, you know, he's not a, uh, easy guy to get close to. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's a, really pretty private guy, but, uh, he's, he's always been, I don't think you'd find many people that say he wasn't a good guy. You know, I mean, I, I, I gotta say he was, he was not just a, a great wrestler, in-ring performer. He was a good guy. And so, uh, I think, I think as far as, as far as the other wrestlers are concerned, I just think that he would like to, I would think he would like to have the guys say, Hey, Mark, Mark was a good guy. Yeah, and you always hear that about him and uh, how he was, you know, kind of the leader of the locker room and resolved a lot of issues. And, you know, when they asked Vince on the documentary what Taker meant to WWE, Vince just got choked up and couldn't even answer and told him to cut. So, obviously, as a person, uh, yeah, that's probably what uh, everybody in the business will, will remember. I've enjoyed talking about him. We need to get him. I think he has. He been doing some podcasts lately. Maybe we could give him a call and and just have him come on and say hi sometime. I guess that would be okay. We want to have a <laughs> taker on the show. Well, we'll work on that. 
Yeah, well, what a career, and if that really was his last match, you know, I think all the fans just say thank you. Thank you so much for the last 30 years. Unbelievable how he was able to take that gimmick and make it last 30 years. That takes his talent. Yeah, you're not kidding. It really does. Um, but you know what? My crown's off to him. He did it, and uh, it, it's it, it's it's still going. It's still lasting. That that gimmick will last, I believe, forever. Absolutely. You can always do the entrance and come out, give somebody a choke slam, and everybody will be happy that they came to the show. Yep, you're right. <laughs> so, well, all right, man. We are back. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week, we promise. Thank you, King. Yep. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, uh, tweet at jerrylawler.com and uh, website kingjerrylawler. Oh, no, kingjerrylawler.com and Twitter is at jerrylawler. All right. Well, thank you so much, and we'll talk to everybody next week.